0: So ADHD is one of those diagnoses in psychiatry that it it's a double-edged sword uh because the people who really have it it's a real problem bigger than I think people appreciate but yet some of the symptoms are common enough that it's easy for people to think they have a disorder when they just have trouble focusing for the moment or even for this season of time that they're in, because they have their they're juggling too many things. Not every inability to focus or follow through on things is the disorder of ADHD.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast Dr. Marks is a general and forensic psychiatrist of over 20 years whose mission is to increase mental health awareness and understanding by educating people on psychiatric disorders, mental well-being, and self-improvement. As a forensic psychiatrist, she has formulated over a 1,000 opinions through independent medical evaluations, criminal assessments, and civil litigation consultations. She has been qualified as an expert in multiple federal and state courts and military court martial She also maintains a general psychiatry clinical practice, focusing on mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and burnout. Today on the show, we discuss why so many people are feeling anxious right now, how your gut health impacts your mental health, and how to utilize diet and exercise to optimize your mood, the difference between anxiety and worry, and how to reduce anxiety in the short-term and in the long-term, how to know if you truly have ADHD, and how to effectively manage it personally and professionally, the signs and symptoms of depression, And how to transform your negative thoughts and feelings into positive action, what you can do if you struggle with procrastination, and so much more. So, let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Tracy Marks to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Dr. Marks, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Doug.
1: You're welcome. And I kind of would love to just get right into it because I know that you specialize in talking about all things mental health. And right now, we're in a mental health epidemic, and people right now, are struggling a lot, and specifically, I've seen with with anxiety. In from your perspective, why are so many people feeling so anxious right now?
0: I think it's a lot of different factors. One is a sign of the times. Um, with all of the, uh, you know, probably beginning with the pandemic, I think that set a lot of people back and added a lot of stressors that we didn't have before the pandemic. But I also think there's just an increase in awareness. Probably 10 years ago, uh, certainly before I started producing um, mental health content on YouTube, it was still very taboo to talk about anything mental, whether it be depression or anxiety, which are the two more common issues that people have. Um, it It wasn't as accepted to talk about it. But now with YouTube, TikTok especially, Instagram as well, it's, it's become a lot more in vogue even to be uh, to consider yourself vulnerable and enlightened to be able to talk about what's going on in your, your mind. Um, so with that, you just get an increase in incidence or a recognition of it. And it can seem like it's more people when it's just more people acknowledging um part of that acknowledgement also can come from even recognizing that you have a problem because sometimes a person can just not feel good but not and just think that everybody's like this and not see it as well I actually have a problem um so learning and understanding that um exp- having certain experiences like uh trouble focusing um trouble sleeping Um, Maybe even like you can't keep food down or have trouble eating are things that may be a part of the stressors in your life or, or there may be external factors that are causing you to feel this way at this time. And like understanding that and understanding that you can function better is, you know, brings to the forefront, hmm, maybe I have an anxiety problem or a depression problem.
1: I love how you didn't really bring up like the fight or flight things. I think a lot of times when people think about anxiety and if they're feeling anxious, they think of this state of feeling like in this state of panic. And there's so many signs and symptoms that I think often get overlooked. You mentioned like digestive stuff. You mentioned sleep. What are a few others that you think often get overlooked as far as symptoms of somebody with anxiety?
0: Oh, it can be things like, um, dizziness. Um, feeling spacey, or or like they can't keep their thoughts together, um, or 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 can't add thoughts together. Like I, something's is just not clicking. Some people can feel nauseous, even though, um, let's say you know it could just kind of all of a sudden they start feeling nauseous, and they may not associate that with anxiety because of you know you just think oh maybe it was something I ate or. I haven't been eating well lately, or something like that. But some people can even wake up feeling nauseous at a time that you would expect. Hey, you wake up, relax. You just you just slept all night. What's the problem? And because it doesn't make sense that you would wake up nauseous, um, a person can think that that's not really anxiety. That I have some stomach problem, and end up going back and forth to the doctor until and getting lots of tests until they're told um, this is probably stress or anxiety.
1: Speaking of gut health, I know it's like, what is it? 90% of our serotonin is is in our gut, 50% of our dopamine. How is things like gut health and and anxiety um, and worry and fear and stuff like that? How is that all related?
0: Well, uh, I was just reading an article the other day. Uh, I can't remember the headlines, but it was something like eye-catching like you, you, there's more bacterial cells in your body than human cells. It's like we're, we're actually more bacteria. We're more, um, bacterial and viral than we are human. Um, but what's that speaking to is the fact that there's a whole, um, world of bacteria, virus, fungi in our gut. And they, those, um, Those organisms produce chemicals that then can travel through your body, but um, straight to your brain through your vagus nerve and have an effect on your emotions and your mind. And similarly, um, it can work in reverse, where um, stress and things like that that's going on in your your head and body can affect the bacteria in your gut, killing off good bacteria. And allowing the bad bacteria, the ones that secrete the the toxic uh, chemicals, if you will, to thrive. So addressing the bacteria that live in our gut and trying to make them as diverse as possible and, um, and, and making them kind of a healthy colony of bacteria and viruses can improve your overall health as a physical health, as well as mental health. And I think this idea of the microbiome is called, they call it that because of the impact that all of these organisms have on our body. Um, it's like a, a secondary brain in our gut. Some people will uh, consider it a secondary immune system that belongs in the gut. Another way that having bad bacteria can impact your health is when they secrete toxins and chemicals that cause the cells in your gut to separate, and you get a leaky gut, and things kind of spilling out into your body. And we create antibodies to these things that can also cause disease. So some of our some things like diabetes and other kinds of um, things like colitis and things are thought to be the the are thought to be due to autoimmunity.
1: And from a mental health perspective, like based on your viewpoint and and your experience on this, like what specifically is it about poor gut health that causes more anxiety in people? Is it that it disrupts like neuro the neurotransmitters that are made in the gut? Is it because of inflammation, like you just said? Like, what do you think is um, like at the cause of that?
0: Yeah, it's a combination of things. It's inflammatory-based, so it gets a little complicated. But when we use the term inflammation, a lot of people will think of swelling. But that's, inflammation can cause swelling, but really the inflammatory process involves the secretion or, or the production of lots of chemicals in the body that can have a negative effect on cells that's kind of a general way to think of it. So with poor gut health, you can, get, um, you can get chemicals that are secreted by some of these bacteria. They travel through the vagus nerve, which is the longest nerve in the body that goes from your brain to your gut and travel back to um, your brain. And one way to think of anxiety, when it comes to the impact on the brain is loosening nerve connections, this kind of concept of neuroplasticity. So for optimal brain functioning, you need nerves to uh, tightly connect to one another, just like any, any kind of electrical circuit. Um, and so if you start getting loose connections between these nerves, you start getting inadequate functioning. And so that inadequate functioning can be responsible for both depression, where you have less uh, um, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine chemicals being produced like they should be. And similarly, you can also get malfunctioning, if you will, of certain structures in the brain that are responsible for um, controlling or modulating your anxiety. Your amygdala is one such structure that detects threats. And if it is overactive, it can make you think that you need to be fearful about something that's not something you should be fearful about, like worrying about the future or the past or or over-anticipating something something bad is going to happen.
1: And I think sometimes people um, get... The feeling of anxious, the feeling of anxiousness and having anxiety confused, meaning like if they're going through a stressful situation in their life, it's very normal to feel anxious about that situation. Um, Whereas like anxiety to me means that you're just constantly in that worry mode every single day or for, for an extended period of time. In your um, understanding, can you please, I mean, in your understanding, if you could talk about the difference between the two, like how does somebody know that they're just experiencing a feeling of, feelings of anxiousness versus they actually have like something like generalized anxiety that they should, you know, potentially go see somebody medically to help them with that?
0: Right. Okay. Great question. Because anxiety is a normal response to uh, a real threat. So if um, I'm driving and I have to slam on my brake because uh, some ducks kind of fly out into the street, um, it's going to take me a while to settle down. My heart's going to be racing. I might even feel like I'm going to throw up. That's a normal response. When it becomes an abnormal response is when you have similar feelings of fear, dread, physical symptoms that persists beyond the threat. So let's say in that same example, um, I pull myself together, I go to the store, I get back home, and I'm still feeling on edge. Um, I have trouble going to sleep at night. Um, the next day, I start worrying about what if that were to happen again? Um, I This could have happened to me. Imagine if that had happened to me. So that's just a, that's just an illustration, but kind of the the answer to what's the difference between normal anxiety or a normal anxious response to persistent anxiety that has become a problem is when you have symptoms either mental, like worrying or physical, like headaches, feeling sick, trouble sleeping, that persist in the absence of an identifiable stressor. Or even if there is an identifiable stressor like COVID, or maybe your job is going to be um, reducing its workforce or something like that, it starts to affect your performance, your ability to think and communicate. Um, Maybe you feel subjectively feel inner distress every day. Like persistence and intensity are really kind of the things that people should look at as to how much is this affecting me.
1: So I would imagine there's like a lot of gray area in what you just discussed. Like, How can somebody understand whether or not something that they're worried about is like justifiable or whether they're overreacting and they might actually have anxiety?
0: Yeah, that's a very good point and a good question. So um, that's going to be determined. Your reaction or response to a stressor um, is going to be determined by your temperament, Uh, your personality. So how easily, what's your threshold for feeling distress about something? That's kind of the question here. Well, how you react in the moment doesn't necessarily speak to whether or not you have a problem because it's all relative. So yes. So let's say we have an argument. You are upset in the moment and then you go sit down and watch television. Whereas I'm upset, but I'm screaming, I'm crying. I'm like, uh, shaking, I have trouble sleeping that night. So on the one hand, it might look like I have more of a problem because it this really like shook me up and and bothered me all day. Whereas you're the healthier person, so to speak, because you were able to just shake it off and go watch television. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Maybe you responded that way because you're fairly guarded and not very emotive or expressive with your emotions. And the stress that that caused you shows up in a different way, like you need to throw back a couple of drinks, or you need to, like, you know, go off and do something else that's not very constructive for you to just kind of get rid of this negative feeling. Where the line is kind of drawn with between those two reactions, as to how much of a problem it causes, is how much of a problem does it continue to cause? So now, even though I was really broken up that that evening when we had this fight, am I still able to get up and go to work every day? Am I still able to fulfill, fulfill my duties? Or is this something that I'm fretting about every single day? That would be more the pathological response of how long is it lasting more than how badly did it bother me at the time.
1: So it seems what you're saying is You can really tell the difference between the the feeling of anxiousness versus having anxiety based on how long those feelings persist and how long all of that lasts. And then as far as reducing anxious feelings and reducing anxiety, what do you feel are the best things to reduce anxiety in the short term and then also in the long term?
0: So there are lots of different things people can do for anxiety um making it better and managing it and what works for one person may not work for the next person and of course right now I'm talking about non medication non treatment options as far as like increasing your tolerance for anxiety provoking things some of the things that you can do to just kind of like build up your base or your foundation would be Having a clean diet, minimizing processed foods because the processed foods increase your colony of bad bacteria in your gut. Having regular exercise, like these kind of foundational health, uh, healthy lifestyle related things are the things that kind of boost up your foundation to better tolerate stressors. And then getting seven to nine hours of sleep if you're an adult, like those are kind of the baseline things beyond that, sometimes uh, things like uh, practicing relaxation um, exercises, whether it be um, controlling your breaths, deep breathing, because we tend to, when we get anxious, to huff and puff and and breathe shallow, shallowly. And you don't always recognize it. You don't say, oh, I'm breathing shallow right now. You're just, you just do it. Um. So slowing, taking deeper breaths, inhalations, and exhalations. Slow your breaths so that you're not breathing fast. That's one thing. But sometimes if someone's really anxious, it's hard for them to like stop and do that. Practicing mindfulness, I think, is a very easy and effective thing to do. to Kind of center yourself and take yourself out of the stressful moment and focus on what's right in front of you right now. because. Sometimes when, especially someone who, whose anxiety is generated by worrying about future events, that's more the generalized anxiety picture, the what-ifing and that sort of thing, Pract- being mindful and paying attention to the current moment with all of your senses breaks that cycle of ruminating about worrying about the future or 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 making something bigger than it may otherwise be because you're not kind of thinking it over and over. Those are just a couple of couple of things. Listening to music is also another way to kind of break the cycle of worrying about something in the future and just focusing in on this pleasant on these pleasant sounds.
1: I want to stay on the topic of worry. Because I think that is something that really trips people up where they have an event they're worried about and then that worry turns into more worry, more rumination. And now they're worrying about other things that they weren't even worried about before. And then now it's impacting their relationships and then they're worrying about that. And it just creates this snowball of unnecessary angst and stress. Let's just say that I was a client of yours and that I was like consistently worrying now about something, whether it be money, whether it be... um you know, the health of my dog, whether it be, you know, work tomorrow, whatever it is, like, what are some best practices, like specifically that could help calm me down in the moment to bring me back to center?
0: So one thing I would probably recommend is trying a worry journal. (laughs) It's where you set aside time for worry, because you can't just say, well, stop worrying, that doesn't work. You're going to worry about these things. Okay, but what you don't want to do is worry about it all day or have it running in the background while you're trying to do other things. And it's, now it becomes a distraction for you. You can't concentrate, focus, et cetera. So you, you're going to set aside 30 minutes or an hour, how long, however long you think you're going to need. And that is the time, it's kind of like compartmentalizing. That is the time that you were going to let it rip, about all these things that are bothering you, writing them out, not just think, keeping them in your head, writing them out, and even during that time, trying to do some problem solving. Because if you have some dedicated time to think through things, just trying to like work through some solutions can be soothing and comforting to a degree because you can kind of recognize, all right, maybe this isn't, the catastrophe that I think that it might become, that there may be lesser forms of this when it pops up and I might be able to manage this. Because sometimes it's just about control. Will I be able to manage this situation, whatever I'm worrying about? Then you have to have the discipline to allow yourself or to say to yourself when something pops up, I'm not going to think about this right now because at seven o'clock, I'm going to be able to just let this roll. If you still have trouble shutting it off, then maybe make a quick note to yourself, you know, in your notes app on your phone or something about this thing that you are going to later ex- fully explore. That does take work to be able to um, be able to stop. Um, one thing that some people can use um it's it's a grounding technique in in some ways um to make themselves stop thinking about something that they're gonna think about later is wearing like a rubber band or some other kind of elastic thing around your wrist and snapping it when you find yourself slipping into these thoughts or or spending too much time thinking about this thing that you're supposed to be worrying about later.
1: That's a great process, and I love how you um like laid that out, like giving people like practical tools to process um, their worry, to help them move through that situation so that it doesn't become worse. I want to shift gears just a little bit and and talk about ADHD. Talk about attention because I know right now a lot of people are, are struggling to pay attention. Our attention spans, I think, are decreasing and increasing over time based on the world that we live in. But I think. People often will say, well, I just have ADD. I just have ADHD. Based on what you know, how does, what's the difference between somebody who has something like ADHD versus somebody who just needs to do a better job, at just staying focused on tasks and not getting distracted? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue, and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show.
0: So ADHD is one of those diagnoses in psychiatry that it it's a double-edged sword uh, because the people who really have it it's a real problem bigger than i think people appreciate but yet some of the symptoms are common enough that it's easy for people to think they have a disorder when they just have trouble focusing for the moment or even for this season of time that they're in because they have they're they're juggling too many things not every inability to focus or follow through on things is the disorder of ADHD. So what happens is everybody gets, can get mixed into to this one big pie. And then the people who do have a disorder get marginalized because of a sentiment of, well, everybody's got ADHD. So, you know, what's the problem? All right. That's my... Um, <laughs> My own uh, personal frustration with dealing with this disorder, because uh, yeah, I will have some people um, come and want to get on, put on medication because uh, they've been, you know, doing well in sales all these years, but now, you know, the younger people are doing better. So they want to do better at 55. And so they need, they want pills to help for performance enhancement. That is not the way uh, to address that problem. But at any rate, I will say, uh, and it's easy to get me going off on a tangent with ADHD because it's, it's, it's a very hard disorder to, to manage or deal with for the person who really struggles with more than just attention, but executive dysfunction. What does executive dysfunction look like? Poor planning, poor time management even emotional dysregulation can be a part of ADHD. It's not part of the diagnostic criteria, but it's an associated symptom. ADHD can affect the way people think about themselves and their self-esteem because if you think about it, some of these things with always like being late all the time um, be exasperating for the people around them and and those people can then not want to not want to deal with them. Think that you're just lazy. Think that you're not very smart, and it can really take a toll on your self-esteem. As usual, I've lost track of your question because I have a, a lot of unvented uh, feelings about this disorder because I, I've seen the pain of, of people who are struggling with it, and especially now with medication shortages out there, it's very frustrating. Um, and you can, And these medications don't always, uh, they can have their own negative effects. Um, I was just talking with someone today about the crash effect of Adderall, taking it, um, being able to focus well for several hours, and then having, feeling this kind of crash and burn effect afterwards. And that makes them not want to take it.
1: So what I'm hearing you say is somebody who has ADHD, how you can tell the difference between between that and somebody who just struggles to pay attention, it's more about how they operate and function in their daily life. Like, are they good at planning? Are they good at um, managing their emotions? Are they good at being on time to things and scheduling? And it's not just um, somebody who can't focus on a task for a period of time. Like, it's somebody who actually has a is a, is challenged to manage the day to their day to day life. Correct?
0: Yes that is part of it and thanks for help redirecting me back to your original question of how you can tell the difference so that is a big aspect of it it is it's more than just inattention but there are other so it's kind of also a diagnosis of ruling out other problems so anxiety can make people have trouble paying attention depression can make people have trouble paying attention and focusing so Um, you know, someone who has, who starts noticing that at 45, you're having trouble focusing, it would be important to look at, are there other medical issues going on? You know, low thyroid production can affect your how you think and problem solve and things like that. Um, Being under a lot of stress, as I, I mentioned, can make it hard for you to focus and get things done. So, when you're looking at, do I really is this really ADHD that no one has recognized up until this point You'd look at back at your childhood because it doesn't start in adulthood. It really starts in childhood. But people may go through childhood managing until they get to a point where they've got too many responsibilities to be able to manage. And then they start noticing these problems. But generally, they would have a history of, having some degree of either hyperactivity or trouble organizing, focusing, concentrating even in childhood but but now as an adult it may be worse.
1: And so you talked about some of the the dangers with taking medications and that they're not as readily available as they used to be. From a lifestyle perspective, how can somebody begin to reverse some of these symptoms of ADHD?
0: They're not easily reversible. So um, I will say with ADHD, it also can be a threshold issue, meaning that you've got symptoms that aren't that bad, but they're manageable up until a point where something makes it not that manageable. So what do I mean by that? Um, So let's say you have trouble, you're your ADHD or your attention issues mostly manifest with you, you read slow. Um, sometimes you don't remember what someone said to you because you weren't paying attention, things like that. But hey, you do fine working as a graphic designer. when I mean, you've got your assignments, you don't have to talk to people and you just do your work, put your head down and you can do it because it interests you and you can stay focused. But your job shifts and now you've got to do a bunch of meetings. And you that doesn't work for you now you can't pay attention and things like that so now things start to slip well, the example I'm using here is to illustrate that if you recognize your weaknesses like um your you're, you can't focus on talking but you can you can read then you want to stay away from jobs or try to in, to the best that you can control stay away from things that um, stretch your abilities too much or, or, or rely too much on your weaknesses and sh- focus on things that, that lean to your strengths. So I want to pursue a job that doesn't require me to have to do tons of reading because I'm not a good reader as an example. So I go more toward a job that doesn't have that. So like with the, the planning, for example, if you've got some assignments keeping calendars or lists i mean not everyone not all of these strategies work for everyone but keeping pieces of paper is probably not a good idea you know do you do you work better with a planner but like um planning out like uh your goals and and having smaller steps in between you know step 1 and the ultimate goal things like that And how you do that just kind of depends on what works well for
1: you. You talked about it from a vocational perspective and really making sure that if somebody thinks they have or they've been diagnosed with ADHD, doing their best to make sure that they stick to kind of whatever they're good at when it comes to profession. I know that it can be quite different, though, if you're like at home, and let's just say you're married, you're in a relationship, you have kids, and it's not as easy to say, well, I don't like talking, so I'm just not going to talk to my spouse or I'm not going to talk to my kids. What are some ways that you've seen to be effective, either with some of your clients or just through your own research, for people to um, work on their ADHD in their home life?
0: I think the things that have the biggest impact with the relationships are listening and interacting with people and time management. I think those are kind of the biggies that can be sore points if you're always late, um, not following through with things that you said that you were gonna follow through with, doing what you need to do to keep up with your time, whether it be uh, having alarms, multiple reminders. And this may sound like, oh, that's just so basic, but you'd be surprised at how many people have trouble keeping up with time and don't even wear a watch or don't do anything to keep up with their time. One exercise that I've used with some patients is going through typical things that they do during the day and seeing how long things take for them because a common problem is underestimating how long things will actually take. So I've got a party I'm supposed to show up at two o'clock, it takes me 30 minutes to get there, And I start getting ready at one, not remembering that it actually takes me an hour to do all the things to get ready. The person with ADHD may not appreciate that it actually takes an hour. Even though they've been getting ready for years, they still don't have it down in their head that this actually takes an hour. So, knowing how long things take, being able to better plan out your activities, and leaving enough margin and room for wiggle room um i think can go a long way in not creating a lot of friction because you're late or you you can't you can't deliver something when you're supposed to and then on the other aspect of the communication listen in a way as if you had to transcribe what the person is saying don't be thinking about what you want to say next because then that comes across as, you know, you weren't even listening to me. So I tell you something that happened to me today. And then you ask, so where'd you go? I'm like, I just told you. you were, I know you weren't listening. So try, trying to rein in the mind wandering and things while people are talking to you and listen as though you had to like repeat everything that I said to someone else, like listening with a lot of intention.
1: What's your advice for for somebody that let's just say somebody who's listening to this has ADHD, or their spouse, or somebody that they're in a relationship with has ADHD? What's your advice for them to to navigate um, the growth for that, so that you know the person, say the person who has ADHD, is able to like effectively communicate with their partner, like, "Hey, I'm working on this. You know, please be patient with me. I'm doing the best I can." And then also from the other side that I'm sure it's got, it can be frustrating at times if you're in a relationship with somebody that's always late, doesn't know how to, can't plan anything, can't follow through. um, How can that person also learn to have some compassion for what this person's going through uh, while supporting them on that journey?
0: That requires a lot of effort on both sides, just kind of how you laid it out there. I think it starts with the person with ADHD Recognizing that the problem the 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 things that they have difficulty with cause frustration for other people now it probably causes frustration for them too. It's not fun having to always look for something and never finding things and you know all of that, but still, being willing, you have to start with being willing to make changes or do things to improve your these things um so that it's not such a burden on the other person. Because if you don't, like if you just say, well, this is the way I am. Um, and if you love me, you'll deal with it. That's not going to work. <laughs> because then the other person doesn't feel like, well, if you loved me, you try and, and improve this. So then on the other side, for the other person who's not affected with ADHD, kind of two two things, two approaches. One is if you've got if your partner or loved one is working on this, so you start, they've started there, then is trying to extend the patients to understand, to re, to stay top of mind that this is a problem that they have, um, a neurodevelopmental problem. This is not just being lazy or inconsiderate and having the, that, that's, that takes constant reminding because if you don't think that way, um, you don't understand, you can understand how someone can't remember to put this the toothpaste back in the drawer or, or put the top back on, things like that. Um, but then another angle to this support person is not turning into a parent if it's a partner, um, or becoming the you know, the mommy, you know, if it's a <laughs> Woman and a, and a husband who's um, assuming the role of a surrogate brain and taking care of everything. And it's hard not to slip into that if you want to just kind of be the one who takes care of everything in the family because your partner is going to forget, so I know that, so I'll just do it myself. But then, you know, the dynamics can end up being that the the, the non-ADHD partner becomes more like the parent or, or someone that they shouldn't be, uh, instead of being an equal, you know, we're still peers.
1: I think it, from what I'm, from what I'm hearing you say, it just comes down to communication, learning, growing, compassion, and also accountability, um, for that situation. It's going to help each other grow throughout that process. I want to, um, go into something else. I think a lot of people are having a hard time with right now, and that's depression, I guess, like based on based on what you know and your education and and the growth of research that's come out about depression, like what are the telltale signs and symptoms of somebody who's experiencing depression?
0: Probably the most obvious or the the one that people could probably relate to most is a person who's sad, um, not very glum, crying things like that. But that's not always the way depression looks. So. Um, And also, one day of crying doesn't have to mean depressed. So these would be, you know, the diagnosis is that you have these symptoms for at least two weeks, and that's to take out, you know, having a bad day kind of thing being a problem. That said, depression can carry with it a lot of physical issues as well, like energy, very low energy, trouble getting out of the bed. So you see someone who's like lying around all the time, it's hard to stay in the bed for hours um, unstimulated if you're not depressed or be sitting around in a room with no television. You're not doing anything and it's hard to sit there unstimulated. Sounding as though you're hopeless, like you just don't see being very negative all the time. Lots of sighing. Um, because everything's hard. Everything becomes hard. Having um, low frustration tolerance, we call it, of not, you know, we've got to, you know, call the plumber today and this happened and this happened. Well, the person who's not depressed, that still might be frustrating to have all these things on the to-do list, but the depressed person may just feel so overwhelmed with all of that, that they end up doing nothing. So things are just kind of Uh, piling up around them. Maybe their home is in a big disarray or their room because they just can't pull it together to organize anything. Those are kind of more subtle signs of depression and and irritability is another subtle sign of depression.
1: I think sometimes the the doom and gloom and how you feel mentally and emotionally can be so overwhelming when you're in the thick of, of depression that people have a hard time like taking that first step out and then like feeling sometimes depressed for a few weeks can turn into um a few months, a few years, and so on and so on. What has been effective with your patients and and people that you've seen when they're in the thick of a depressive state to be able to um help them take some small steps to to get out into a more positive one
0: sure so Medication aside, um, a, an, an, an intervention for depression actually is called behavioral activation. And that sounds nice and clinical, but all it really is, is getting moving little bit by little bit. The more you do, the better you feel. And typically with a person who's really depressed, even just getting out of the bed can feel monumental. And they can end up spending most of their day not doing very much, even if it even if they thought they were doing something, it's like if you watch them, they're not doing anything hardly. everything's slow moving, so that said, if you can't take a person who's barely getting out of the bed and say, "We'll go to the gym five days a week and get on the treadmill for thirty minutes that's not they're not going to be able to do that just so you take it in baby steps, so take a walk around the block or um you know just things that are easy and it doesn't even have to necessarily be athletic it could be get up and go to the grocery store and come back home things that they weren't doing to start doing little things and then take it from there after you after you're able to get up and go to the grocery store then now um you know go to an appointment or go go to a friend's house and then come back home so Increasing activity and increasing contact with people has have been things that have helped people um, who are depressed and isolated.
1: Yeah, I love that you brought up taking the small steps because I think sometimes people they try to go from zero to a hundred, which is incredibly overwhelming, like you wouldn't tell somebody who is never run a mile to go out and run a marathon, right? So kind of the same thing with somebody who's in a state like we've been talking about. You really, I think it's really effective to just start them slow. And like you said, have them walk around the block and take that first step and then start to, to build off of that. From my own experience and of having my own struggles with, with depression in my past, I've had a hard time with like negative thoughts. And I think a lot of people do as well, that when they're in that depressed state, sometimes what keeps them stuck is how they feel about themselves. Or how they feel about that situation? Um, how can somebody begin to like transform those, those negative thoughts into some sort of positive action?
0: So this is where therapy comes in to help. Now, granted, everyone can't afford therapy or even have, or either they don't have the resources for it, or there may be like no one taking patients in your area. <laughs> That's a thing these days. So in the absence of say professional help, there, sometimes if you are not that self aware, you could still get the assistance of a friend, someone you trust to help you recognize negative thinking that you have. Um, because when you're, when you're depressed, um, you may not even just have the mental resources to self reflect enough to recognize negative thinking. So it, it would take some kind of exercise, whether it's something that you read and someone's prompting you, or a friend prompting you. So, hey, you want to you wanna do this? Well, no, because I just don't think that blah, blah, blah. And, and that friend helping you see, hey, what do you mean that you don't think that anybody will like what you did? Um, I like what you did. Why would you think that? You know, that kind of, that's one way a friend, or just someone hearing what you're saying and mirroring it back to you, repeating it back to you, helps you see your negative thoughts. And then the next step beyond that would be trying to challenge the thought that you have because chances are there's some distortion in what you're thinking. Mental, it's interesting you bring this up now, um, mentalhealthamerica.org Um, has a lot of good resources on their site. Um, And they have even more now that Mental Health Awareness Month is the month of May. But they have an exercise on their site that is, it's it's a, I forgot what they called it, but it's essentially, it's a cognitive distortion tool. And you can put in something that you think and it can help you recognize how it is a thinking trap. Is it catastrophizing? Is it overgeneralizing? These are some examples of cognitive distortions that people can have that affect how you think about yourself. Then, once it helps you recognize that, then it can even it even gives you suggestions on how to reframe what you think. I bring that up because that is it's a self help tool, but that's the kind of thing that it would take for someone who can't do their own self reflection of having someone try and kind of pull out some of these thinking traps or or negative thoughts that they have and help them reframe them.
1: I love that. It seems like a great resource and I'll be sure to include the link to that in the in the show notes. I want to talk about um from a broader perspective, what are some things that people can do to to optimize their mood? Like for instance, I know that if i'm trying to coach somebody to eat healthy i'm like all right half your plate and vegetables get some lean protein get some healthy fat get some good car- get a good source of carbohydrates like what are the things that you would include on somebody's plate if they're looking to optimize their mood
0: i think diet is everything and um so in addition to eliminating highly processed foods so packaged goods um people will will Uh, often say shop the perimeter of the grocery store and not the interior of the grocery store where you have all the packaged stuff. Eating about half of your plate be vegetables and yes, having some healthy fats. Now there's this whole thing of plant-based diets. I happen to be a person who believes in plant predominant. Because there have been, um, lo- there's lots of support for the Mediterranean diet being an actual treatment for a depression. Um, there was a study where um, part of the control group had what would be like um, the sham therapy and a non-Mediterranean diet, and then the control group had a Mediterranean diet, and they the Mediterranean diet group of people improved in significant areas in with their depression symptoms. The Mediterranean diet includes meat. So it's still heavy fruits and vegetables, um, but it includes meat. You want to uh, minimize the meat. So you don't have a meat meal every single day, but it does include meat. So I'm, that's why I say plant predominant, but I think kind of easy steps for someone would be to start with probably adding an additional vegetable to their meal every day. Because, you know, if you think of a typical meal, a meat, a starch, and a vegetable, well, add another vegetable in and have less of the starch, say. Or if you don't like meat, have another uh, vegetable instead of meat. But having nutrient-dense meals is like, fertilizing your brain that's what we need we need nutrients
1: absolutely the way you eat is is so important and like other than like diet and trying to follow up a healthy dietary pattern what are a few other things that you think people should be doing on a daily or weekly basis to optimize their mood and and help prevent depressive states
0: so that would also include at least we generally say, uh, 150, uh, minutes of aerobic type exercise, which works out to about five days a week, uh, 30 days, 30 minutes a day, um, of some type of cardiovascular activity. So that could be brisk walking. It could be, you know, it could be, it doesn't have to be running. Um, So, regular exercise, and that's what's considered regular exercise. Um, Instead of 150 minutes, it could be 75 minutes of moderate to high-intensity exercise. That would be more like jogging or running or swimming. So, regular exercise, as clean of a diet as you can get, which then means, I mean, that's work, actually. That's actually saying a lot to have a clean diet. You're Probably having to bring lunches, you know, fast food, doesn't cut it. And then planning your day around sleep. I've always said that I think sleep planning starts in the morning and not at nighttime because what you do during the day matters. So if you um, have this really high stress day, let's say you go working out at 8 p.m., and you're trying to go to bed at 11, your body's probably going to be too overheated um, or too warm um, to be able to fall asleep a couple of hours after you worked out. You need some distance between exercise and going to bed. So planning your sleep in the morning means setting a bedtime, which a lot of people don't set a bedtime. They just go to bed whenever it works out but setting an actual bedtime and then working backwards as to what you should and shouldn't be doing before bed. I I usually recommend people not have any caffeine after noon. Different people metabolize caffeine differently. Some people faster and some people slower, but a good rule of thumb is just don't have any caffeine after noon. I usually recommend people not have anything to drink at least an hour before bed. Sometimes that's hard. For people. They don't like going to bed feeling thirsty, but if you drink too close to bedtime, then you're going to wake up needing to go to the restroom before your body's ready to wake up or your mind is ready to wake up. So sleep is huge and it takes discipline and effort and intention to make yourself get into a regular sleep routine.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if people could just master how they eat, exercise and their sleep it it will get them such a long way with improving their mental health or any other area of their life Uh, the last thing i want to ask you about is procrastination and obviously if somebody's struggling with anxiety adhd or depression like that is likely i'm sure contributing to the procrastination but for the for somebody who maybe isn't experiencing symptoms of those three things What's the, what, could, what could be the, their process to stop procrastinating and actually do the thing that they know they should be doing?
0: One suggestion is to pair the thing that they have to do with a reward. I have a paper that I've got to write and turn in, hate writing, um, so I'm going to put instead of putting it off until forever, one, chop up the task to make it uh, into something that's easier for me to handle like uh, trying to plan out, you know, I'll write if a 10 page paper, I'll try and write two pages a day or something like that. I'm just kind of speaking off the top of my head. But then when I am, and and then even with that, those steps, I could pair those those steps with the reward. So after I complete two pages, then I will allow myself to be on TikTok for 30 minutes. And then when I get to 80% of this task, then I'll allow myself to go and you know meet a friend uh, for a drink or socialize or something. That's one suggestion of how to get past procrastination is to jump in head first and do the unpleasant, knowing that you're going to have something pleasant, follow it soon afterwards. And so that you can look forward to the other thing and just kind of get through the thing you don't really want to do.
1: right. Positive reinforcement definitely, definitely works. Um, Do you believe in like scare tactics? Like, do you think that like, you know, thinking about like where your life could be if you don't do that thing actually is effective?
0: Uh, Sadly, I don't. (laughs) I mean, I do think that can motivate some people of like, ooh, I don't want to be broke. So I'm going to build this business. Okay, that's. I don't think, I think the person who responds to that isn't the person that we're talking about with this ADHD procrastination and all that, because that's the thing. I know we were talking about anxiety as well, but that's the thing with ADHD. It is not just a mind over matter, just make yourself see the future and you'll be able to pull through. Um, But yes, some people can be motivated sufficiently by just looking at like negative reinforcements, looking at the things they don't want to happen. Um, And then there are always the people who will say, well, I work better under pressure. Those are people who can't have too much fluff out at the beginning. Like if there's just too much space out here before the deadline, that distracts them like that that extra time is distracting and they fill it up with something else until they get close enough to the finish line to see the finish line. And then that's what pushes them forward to, to walk through the finish line. But if it's, if the finish line is way too far out in the future, it it doesn't mean anything to them.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That all makes sense. And, um, I think this is a great place for us to, to kind of end our combo because we've covered so much ground and I think the audience is really going to appreciate it. So Tracy, I wanted to really thank you once again for your time and for coming on. If people want to learn more about your work, if they want to follow you on social media, where's the best place to do that?
0: My main place that I am on social media is YouTube. Uh, my YouTube channel is my name, Dr. Tracy Marks, and that's DR. And then Tracy, T R A C E Y, Marks, M A R K S. I'm also on um, Instagram and TikTok at the same handle, Dr. Tracy Marks. And then my newest uh, invention is the mental wellness space. It's mentalwellnessspace.com. And that's where actually we address um, mental wellness from the perspective of diet, exercise, uh, maintaining um, you know, healthy lifestyle choices and things to optimize your mental health.
1: That's so amazing. And I'm so glad that you are tackling, um, mental health from a wellness perspective. I think it's so needed. So Tracy, I wanted to, to, once again, thank you for your time. I will be sure to include the links to your stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We covered so much ground on ADHD, depression, anxiety, procrastination. What I want you to do is to share a takeaway of what resonated with you the most and tag Tracy and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.